As he was entering the temple, Sergeant Grady was shot through the head. I instantly set four of the men crouching down in the doorway with bayonets fixed and their muskets placed as to form a chevaux de frise in the narrow entrance. The mob came on helter-skelter in such maddening haste that some of them fell or were pushed onto the bayonets and their transfixed bodies made the barrier impassable to the rest upon whom we, from behind our novel defence, poured shot upon shot into the crowd. Hi guys and welcome back to the Redcoat History podcast and YouTube channel, the place for people who love to learn about British military history. For those who don't know me, my name's Chris and I'm fascinated by the British Army, their history, particularly of the Napoleonic and Victorian eras. If that sounds like your cup of tea, be sure to like and subscribe. Today I'm turning my attention to India. I've started a season all about the so-called Indian Mutiny of 1857. It was a horrific campaign, perhaps as well known for its brutality as for what happened on the battlefield. My focus, as always, is on the brave men involved, those who fought and died for what they believed in. In the previous two episodes of this season, we've looked at the reasons for the outbreak of the mutiny and then the rising in Delhi and the actions that led to the award of the Victoria Cross to its oldest ever recipient. One thing worth noting, guys, is this war does still have a lot of controversy around it, especially in India, where it's known as the First War of Independence. Cornpore was a key city for the East India Company forces. Situated as it was on both the Ganges River and the Grand Trunk Road that led from Calcutta in the east of India, the British capital, to Kabul in Afghanistan. In early May 1857, the garrison of the town consisted of the 1st, 53rd and 56th Native Infantry, the 2nd Light Cavalry and two companies of Indian artillerymen. There were only a handful of white European troops, including about 70 invalids from the 32nd Cornwall Regiment of Foot. There was also 61 gunners with six guns. That meant the European contingent were outnumbered by about 17 to 1. That number did slightly improve just before the fighting began in early June, when a number of soldiers from the 84th Regiment of Foot arrived, as well as a handful of Madras Fusiliers, which was a regiment of Europeans in the service of the East India Company's army. The garrison was commanded by Major General Sir Hugh Wheeler, an old-school East India Company officer. Cool and courageous, he was a veteran of the invasion of Afghanistan, the First Afghan War, and also the wars against the Sikhs, where he'd really proved himself. Wheeler spoke fluent Hindi and was married to a mixed-race woman called Francis. He was 67 years old, though. He was getting on a bit, and he'd served in India for nearly 50 years. News of the mutiny at Meerut and Delhi reached Wheeler on the 14th of May, and soon afterwards he ordered the construction of a defensive position around two large barracks at the centre of the cantonments. It was hard ground and difficult to dig in, but eventually an entrenchment of around nine acres was dug. It wasn't much of a fortress, but was designed simply as a temporary bastion to defend any local Europeans in the event of an uprising. It was expected that if the Indian soldiers did mutiny, they would go straight to Delhi. Therefore, the entrenchment was never expected to be a long-term solution, to be a fortified position to withstand a long siege. At this point, Wheeler was playing a difficult and dangerous game, trying to keep his sepoys happy and appear comfortable in their company, while also planning how to defeat them if they did mutiny. Like many of his officers, he had his own wife and children with him. This must have been incredibly stressful. It's one thing to fight a battle alongside your men. It's another to know your wife and kids are right behind you. What a terrible element of stress that must have added to everybody there. Mowbray Thompson was an officer of the 53rd Native Infantry. He was one of just a handful of Europeans to survive the upcoming siege. 
In his memoir, he recalls the night that the mutiny began in earnest at Cornpool. At length, the much-dreaded explosion came. On the night of the 6th of June, the 2nd Cavalry broke out. They first set fire to the riding master's bungalow and then fled, carrying off with them horses, arms, colours and the regimental treasure test. The old Subedar Major of the regiment defended the colours and treasure which were in the quarter guard as long as he could, and the poor old fellow was found in the morning severely wounded and lying in his own blood at his post. This was the only instance of any native belonging to that regiment who retained his fidelity. The old man remained with us and was killed by a shell in the entrenchment. An hour or two after the flight of the cavalry, the first native infantry also bolted, leaving their officers untouched upon the parade ground. The 56th Native Infantry followed the next morning. The 53rd remained till, by some error of the general, they were fired into. What Thompson's referring to here is an incident where the 53rd was seen assembling and Wheeler, at the end of his tether, decided to order his guns to fire upon them. The officers of that regiment felt they should have been given a chance and that they would have remained staunch. Personally, I'm not sure that they would. To be fair, though, a number of sepoys at Cawnpore did stay loyal to the East India Company's army and a number of them were killed defending the entrenchment. As with everything to do with the mutiny, it's pretty complicated. It's not as simple as them versus us, whites against Indians. No, it really isn't. Okay, so the wait was now finally over. The fighting was about to begin. There was about 300 men in the entrenchment and about 500 women and children, possibly a bit more, maybe as many as 900 people in total. The perimeter was about a mile and a half long with men deployed every 15 paces and working in shifts. After the initial mutiny, the Indian troops planned to set off for Delhi, as had been predicted, but on the way they were met by a local ruler called Nana Sahib. He was the adopted son of a Maratha king called Baji Rao. Because he was adopted, the East India Company had refused to allow him his father's pension and therefore he had very strong reasons for hating the British. William Jonah Shepherd was working as a clerk. He was a mixed-race guy working as a clerk in Cornport when the outbreak began. He was also one of the few to survive and left us this account. He wrote that Nana told the mutineers he would double the amount of pay they received from the British government if they would agree to stay and fight, as by doing so they would get great praise and it would be a grand thing to gain a complete victory over the British at Cawnpore, that the King of Delhi would make much of them, and he himself, Nana, would reward each of them with a gold bracelet to each sepoy worth a hundred rupees. With this offer, the sepoys decided to turn around and head right back to Cawnpore. The next morning at about half past ten, the battle began. Soon the rebels had set up five batteries, 14 guns in total, some of them very close. They were much heavier calibre than the garrison's small number of guns. The garrison was also forced to conserve ammunition, so it was very hard for them to win any of these artillery duels. Mowbray Thompson gives a good account of what it was like to be at the receiving end of one of these sepoy attacks. All through this first weary day, the shrieks of the women and children were terrific. As often as the balls struck the walls of the barracks, their wailings were heartrending. But after the initiation of that first day, they'd learnt silence and never uttered a sound except when groaning from the horrible mutilations they had to endure. When night sheltered them, our cowardly assailants closed in upon the entrenchments and harassed us with incessant volleys of musketry. Waiting the assault that we supposed to be impending, not a man closed his eyes in sleep and throughout the whole siege snatches of troubled slumber under the cover of the wall was all the relief the combatants could obtain. The ping-ping of rifle bullets would break short dreams of home or of approaching relief. Pleasant visions made horrible by waking to the state of things around. 
And if it were so with men of mature years, sustained by the fullness of physical strength, how much more terrible were the nights passed inside those barracks by our women and children? End quote. As the day wore on, those barracks that were at the heart of the defence and that housed the women and children began to take a lot of damage. The walls crumbled, there was holes in them, people inside were being killed. Casualties were growing. Not only that, but they were running low on food and water. The curse of any besieged force. But while the situation grew dire, one man amongst the defenders did really stand out. His name was Captain John Moore of Her Majesty's 32nd Regiment of Foot. It's in times like this that true character really comes out, and he showed his. The fact that he was in Cornwall leading a detachment of invalids makes me wonder how highly thought of he was by his commanding officer. But he certainly proved himself during the siege. He was at the heart of everything, leading sallies against the attackers, spiking guns, and being there to give encouragement to the men at all hours. Thompson wrote of him, Captain Moore was a tall, fair man with light blue eyes and, I believe, an Irishman by birth. Throughout all the harassing duties that devolved upon him, he never lost determination or energy. Though the little band of men at his direction were daily lessened by death, he was cheerful and animated to the last, and inspired all around him with a share of his wonderful endurance and vivacity. He visited every one of the pickets daily, and sometimes two or three times a day, speaking words of encouragement to every one of us. His never-say-die disposition nerved many a sinking heart to the conflict, and his affable, tender sympathy imparted fresh patience to the suffering women. Moore was exactly the sort of man needed. Especially given the likes of Wheeler and some of the other senior officers were old and they were tired. They were suffering from exhaustion and depression. By June the 11th, the bombardment had intensified. The sepoys under Nana Sahib were determined to take the compound. It's said that at this point there was a shell landing every eight seconds. Some of them fired from as close as 350 yards. The sepoys launched another major attack on the 12th of June. Shepard, who had already been wounded, recounts, The din of this fearful cannonading and musketry was so incessant for nearly a couple of hours that it resembled continuous claps of thunder in a tremendous storm. It was an awful moment, a moment when death stared us on all sides and gave a foretaste of what might have been our fate on that occasion. All in the room had fallen to the ground in fervent and earnest supplications to our almighty father. A few well-directed charges of canister from our batteries served to keep them in check, and our men did pretty good execution with their musketry till the enemy's infantry left the field of battle of ret and retired. The civilians suffered particularly heavily during this siege, as is always the case in war, sadly. There are so many stories of young children and pregnant women being amongst the killed and terribly wounded. For my research, I lent heavily on a book called Our Bones Are Scattered by Andrew Ward, and almost every page is packed with depressing stories of tragic death. It's a great book, but my gosh, it leaves a very bad taste in the mouth. But despite everything, Wheeler and the other officers were still hopeful that a relief force was going to come and save them. In fact, a relief column under Brigadier General Henry Havelock was being put together, but logistical problems meant that it was considerably delayed. One of its problems seems to have been that Colonel Neal of the Madras Fusiliers was a little bit overzealous in some of his dealings with the Indians. He disbanded a number of regiments that so far had no, shown no signs of mutiny, and on top of that he was very quick to execute anybody he thought could be talking to the mutineers. Meanwhile, Nana Sahib had his own problems. His army was a mixture of Hindu and Muslim troops. Sometimes they were at odds with one another. For example, there was a time when two Muslim butchers slaughtered a cow in the bazaar. 
They were then arrested and had their hands chopped off for this crime, which obviously goes against Hindu sensibilities. But when they had their hands chopped off, they actually bled to death and died. And this made some of the Muslim soldiers very angry and they went to see Nana Sahib and gave him a piece of their mind. But he was able to keep the army together. At least their hatred of the Europeans, of the Christians, was more than their dislike for one another. The siege dragged on. What had been expected to be a few hours work was now turning into weeks of hard fighting for these sepoys. It was turning into a costly stalemate. On June the 17th, another large attack was launched. It was repulsed, but at the loss of 50 casualties for the defenders. They just didn't have enough men to lose so many. That was followed by another big assault on the 22nd. The leaders of that attack had vowed to take the entrenchment or die trying. And many of them did die for no result. The entrenchment withstood the attack. But despite being able to stand strong, those inside were at the end of their terror. So far about 300 of them had been killed, including virtually all of the gunners who were an incredibly important part of the defence. The buildings were badly damaged, leaving them almost no cover. The heat was intense, beating down on them and literally sending people crazy. All the medicine had been destroyed and water was a scarce resource, incredibly dangerous to fetch from the one well. In fact, there was even a small business people charging to go and fetch water for others because that well was under constant enemy fire. But then on the evening of June the 24th, something surprising happened. The defenders were shocked to see what appeared to be an elderly European lady hobbling across the open ground towards them. Turns out she was a prisoner of Nana Sahib and had been sent to the garrison to give them a letter with options for surrender. What followed was a complicated back and forth, a debate about signatures on the letter and many other things, but essentially the offer was there to take them in boats over to where the British still had a garrison at Allahabad. You can imagine the conversation that happened between those British officers about whether they should surrender or not. General Wheeler was understandably very reticent. He had been burnt by Nana, who he had trusted before the mutiny, and he no longer trusted anything the man said. But others had a different perspective. The argument for surrender actually came from a very surprising source, our hero, Captain Moore. He appealed that actually they should take a chance because the women and children were going to die anyway. At least if they did surrender, there was a chance they might survive. As Thompson later wrote, All of us who were juniors adopted the views of the brave old general, but we well knew that it was only consideration for the weak and wounded that turned the vote against us. Had there been only men there, I'm sure we should have made a dash for Allahabad rather than have thought of surrender. And Captain Moore would have been the first to lead the forlorn hope, a braver soul than he never breathed. End quote. Finally, terms were agreed, and on the morning of June the 27th, the survivors left the entrenchment. Many of them were sick and wounded, and it was very slow going, heading down towards the Ganges River. Our old friend, Captain Moore, not surprisingly, took the lead, leading the advanced party down towards the river. Sepoys and local civilians were hovering about everywhere. Some were friendly, some were very aggressive. Thompson later remembered. Immediately after the exit of the first detachment, the place was thronged with sepoys. One of them said to one of our men, give me that musket, placing his hands upon the we weapon as if about to take it. You shall have its contents if you please, but not the gun, was the reply. The proposal not having been accepted, the insulted Briton walked off. It was the only semblance of an interruption to our departure. But despite generally a promising start, things soon began to deteriorate. With great difficulty, the boats were loaded. 
but the water level was very low and it was a mammoth task to try and push them out into the river. As some of the officers struggled to do so, a bugle sounded and suddenly, with no warning, the sepoys began to open fire, musketry and guns. Soon some of the boats were on fire. Thompson once more picks up the story. The scene which followed this manifestation of the infernal treachery of our assassins is one that beggars all description. Some of the boats presented a broadside to the guns, others were raked from stem to stern by the shot. Volumes of smoke from the thatch somewhat veiled the full extent of the horrors that morning. All who could move were speedily expelled from the boats by the heat of the flames. Alas, the wounded were burnt to death. One mitigation only there was to the horrible fate was that the flames were terribly fierce and their intense sufferings were not protracted. Wretched multitudes of women and children crouched behind the boats or waded out into the deeper water and stood up to their chins in the river to lessen the probability of being shot. Captain Moore was amongst those killed as he tried to push some of the boats out. So was Wheeler's beloved wife, Frances. Boats were sunk and the noise was tremendous. It was now that some of the sepoys and some of the sours, those cavalrymen, waded out into the water and began killing the survivors. The scenes hard and painful to describe. Women and children were amongst those attacked with swords and bayonets. The river was soon red with blood. I did visit the site in 2006, though sadly I've got no video footage of it. It's very, very difficult to imagine it now because it's such a calm and serene site with people, children, teenagers playing. It's very sad to imagine what happened then, but it's nice to see that now it's being used by the locals. When I was there, it was a busy spot. After about an hour, the order was given to stop the killing and any surviving women and children were picked up and taken away from the riverbank by the sepoys. Later on, when a relief force did finally get close to Cornpore, those survivors were killed at a place called the Bibigar. It's another horrendous tragedy. And it's said that the sepoys who were ordered to do the killing were so disgusted that they refused. And so local butchers were ordered forward to do it. When that British relief force finally did arrive in Cornpore, they were shocked and disgusted at what they found. And that was part of the reason why the revenge that they wreaked was so hideous. As I said at the beginning of this, I don't want to dwell on the killings by either side because it is very horrific. If you want more, read Andrew Ward's book. Meanwhile, while all this was happening at the riverbank, one boat, General Wheeler's, had managed to get away. But the Ganges isn't a good place for untrained boatmen to try and navigate. It was slow going, especially as they were taking incoming fire virtually the whole way as they tried to get down the river. Throughout the night and into the next day, the ordeal continued. Wheeler himself, having just seen his wife killed, was an exhausted and broken man. And Major Vibart, who's actually related to Edward Vibart, who we talked about in the Delhi episode, was forced to take command. Thompson, survived a shot to the head and was very, very lucky to keep going, picks up the story once more. Our pursuers speedily discovered us and again opened with musketry on the boat, which was once more settled down deep on a sandbank. At 9am, Major Vibart directed me with Lieutenant Delafosse, Sergeant Grady and 11 privates of the 84th and 32nd Regiments to wade to the shore and drive off the sepoys while they attempted to ease off the boat again. It was a forlorn enterprise. Maddened by desperation, we charged the crowd of sepoys and drove them back some distance until we were thoroughly surrounded by a mingled party of natives, armed and unarmed. We cut our way through these, bearing more wounds, but without the loss of a man, and reached the spot at which we had landed, but the boat was gone. Our first thought was that they had got loose again and were further down the stream, and we followed in that direction, but never saw either the boat or our doomed companions any more. 
Thompson and his men were now stranded and forced to fight their way over open ground to a nearby temple. Here he is again. As he was entering the temple, Sergeant Grady was shot through the head. I instantly set four of the men crouching down in the doorway with bayonets fixed and their muskets placed so as to form a cheval de frise in the narrow entrance. The mob came on helter-skelter in such maddening haste that some of them fell or were pushed onto the bayonets, and their transfixed bodies made the barrier impassable to the rest, upon whom we, from behind our novel defence, poured shot upon shot into the crowd. The attacking force, running out of ideas, then tried to dig their way through the walls, and when that failed, they set the temple on fire. It must have been horrific inside as the roof was burning. Here's Thompson again. I proposed to the men to sell their lives as dearly as possible. Delay would have been certain suffocation, so out we rushed. The burning wood terribly marred our bare feet, but it was no time to think of trifles. Jumping the parapet, we were in the thick of the rabble in an instant. We fired a volley and ran amuck with the bayonet. Seven of our number succeeded in reaching the bank of the river, and we first threw in our guns and then ourselves. The weight of ammunition we had in the pouches carried us under the water. While we were thus submerged, we escaped the first volley they fired. We slipped off the belts, rose again and swam, and by the time they had loaded a second time, there were only our heads for them to aim at. Amazingly, Thompson and three of us managed to survive, and they swam six miles down the river where they were picked up by retainers working for a local Raja who was still on the side of the British. The worst of their ordeal was now over. There were some other survivors, including Jonah Shepherd, who we heard about earlier in the episode. He managed to survive after he convinced Wheeler to let him go on an intelligence-gathering mission outside the wire, so to speak. While there, he got caught and captured and taken prisoner, but was mistaken for a local and thus survived. One or two of the ladies also managed to survive, including one called Amy Horn and General Wheeler's own daughter, Margaret. This is another complicated and confusing story, I guess with many different perspectives. You could say they were both abducted by Muslim sowers of the cavalry, or you could say their lives were saved by those same men, which essentially they were. Either way, they were picked up at the side of the river and taken off by these men. Margaret never returned to European society. Instead, it's said she was ashamed of what had happened and spent the rest of her life living amongst Indians. Wheeler himself and the rest of those on board his boat, those who hadn't been there to collect Thompson after his fighting on land at the side of the Ganges River, were not lucky. Forced to surrender shortly after Thompson had left the boat, they were then taken back to Cornpool. When they got back, a serious disagreement took place between different groups of rebels. A number of sepoys, particularly those who knew Wheeler and liked and respected him, didn't want to see these men killed. They just wanted them imprisoned. But a different group, mainly made up of irregular cavalrymen, mocked them for their, for their empathy and they insisted that they would kill them, and they did. All of the men were executed. Okay guys, I think that pretty much covers the Siege of Cornpore. Obviously I could do a whole series just on that alone, but this should have given you enough information for us to carry on the season. Remember Cornpore became a cry of the British as they then went on to fight the rebels, the mutineers throughout the rest of the war. It's a grim story, I do admit, but I hope you found it interesting. Do subscribe because in the next few episodes we're going to be walking Delhi Ridge, looking at places like Hindu Rao's house where the Gurkhas made a name for themselves. We're going to be storming Delhi through the Kashmir Gate. I was there, got some brilliant pictures which I'm going to share with you. And then we're going to go to Lucknow, a fantastic place to visit and scene of some of the most important heavy fighting of this conflict. You don't want to miss that. All right, guys, stay tuned. We'll speak soon.